Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also recently launched a new LinkedIn group called A Group That Doesn't Suck, so please join that as well if you would like to engage. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is, should I become a consultant or freelancer? And it's it's an interesting topic as, as we record this on uh, January 18th, 2022, you know, as we, as we continue through this, this trans pandemic period that we're in, um, <clears throat> we are seeing society reorganize in many facets in real time. And one of the areas that I don't think any of us were truly prepared for was the way the labor market is, is reorganizing. Um, and we've had a couple of shows, um, late last year probably in the one twenties or so. I think this is recording number one fifty one or two or something. <clears throat> but but you know, we've we've had conversations about how to find or tap into underutilized, underexplored labor pools. Um and and the reasons for that are are that we are experiencing uh an unprecedented labor supply shock that we have not seen since World War II. And and that labor supply shock has occurred for a number of reasons, um, <clears throat> including in whatever order you want to, you want to place, um, that were two and a half million immigrants short of where we would have been had we continued the policies that had been in place before, say, 2016. Um, and that's according to data from the Cato Institute. So that's not a liberal, but, you know, the Cato Institute is a, is a conservative think tank. So don't go all, all up on uh, Blake's a communist kind of thing. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> we have seen, between three to four million people retire that we were not expecting to retire. And that's data that comes from the Kansas City and St. Louis Federal Reserve. Again, they may be communists, but take it up with them, not with me. <clears throat> um, and, and that's been because of a combination of people being let go, and they probably don't have great prospects for reentering the labor force. It's, it's because of people's portfolios suddenly becoming a lot more valuable because they had invested in Apple and Netflix and therefore can afford to retire and people that just don't want to deal with a, with a COVID work environment. Um, on top of that, 
we've had something on the order of 400 to 450,000 people simply die uh, or be disabled by coronavirus that were of working age in the United States. Um, and we've had, we don't know how many people who have exited the workforce um, because for lack of, of uh, daycare and elder care. And the estimates I've seen have placed those numbers in the millions. So the point is you take that many people out of the labor force in an 18-month period, you're going to find that it's hard to, to find workers. Um, and on top of all that, we're finding that the script has flipped in what we've called the gig economy. You know, ever, <clears throat> I think this really arose, I mean, the gig economy has been around for a while. Um, it's been around as, as long as I can remember in my professional life since around 2000 or 2005 when companies were relying on, startups were relying on gig workers to help bootstrap their startups and, and run on ultra lean. And everything was about Elance and Fiverr and now Upwork and, and other places. Um, uh, but that was always considered sort of a fringe area of the labor market. And, and then we saw the second wave of, of gig economy in, the, in, in terms of delivery and transportation, Uber, Lyft, um, Amazon drivers, um, to a lesser extent, delivery services like Instacart, that that really didn't take hold until we all couldn't, didn't feel comfortable leaving our homes anymore. Um, but but what's happened now is that the 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 script the the um, the script has has flipped a little bit, and that I think there is a perception for many for many of us that if you're in the gig economy, you are kind of there because you got relegated, right? You didn't get picked to go work for a big company, or you had unique life circumstances that simply wouldn't let you work work out of the home. Um, but we, you know, frankly, we felt sorry for people, for a lot of people that were in the gig economy because we had the sense or the stigma, perhaps, if we're being fair about it, we had the sense that people were in the gig economy because they were forced there, not because that was, that was a matter of choice. And that's now changing. Um, as, as we, as we enter, a, as we enter a, a, a phase in the economy that I have not seen in my adult lifetime, I don't know if this happened in the early eighties. I was a dumbass teenager then, so I don't know, but I've not seen a, I've not seen a period in my life where labor had this much power in the labor market in the United States. I, I cannot remember when that's ever happened. Even during the dot-com boom, it was really nothing like this. And for a combination of factors of, wanting to work from home, from liking the flexibility of working from home, work-life balance, in some cases, better pay. In some cases, I would argue better stability rather than less in a gig economy than working in a J-O-B job. Um, lots of people are making the switch to becoming consultants and freelancers, often for the companies where they quit their jobs to take that role in the first place. Um, and that's not new, but it's more pervasive because I think companies are more desperate to keep that talent. So they're kind of saying, well, whatever kind of keeps you in the seat, we're going to be willing to do. And so that made me think that to, this is a uh, a neat topic to visit at, at this point in time. Because whether you're a decision maker thinking about entering the gig economy as a freelancer yourself, could be as a side hustle, could be as a full-time thing, or whether it's an employer wondering if you're 
employees are thinking about becoming gig workers, whether they would prefer to become gig workers. Maybe the gig work model is better for you as a company. I think that it, it has relevance and warrants a discussion of the topic that I'm not sure that it really has had since we launched the Decision Vision podcast. And I hope you'll agree. If not, then you'll probably have already turned off and listened to another podcast. But um, but with that long preamble, probably the longest I've ever had, um, today's topic is, should I become a consultant or, or freelancer? And according to the data from MBO Partners and presented by Visual Capitalists, Gig workers are now contributing $1.2 trillion in revenue to the U.S. economy. That's a little bit north of 5%, maybe 6% doing the math in my head. And according to Statista, millennial gig economy statistics show that 44% of millennials freelance. And, you know, as I sit here, I'm now 51. I have to realize that millennials aren't just, aren't just pimply video game playing teenagers anymore. They're, they're, they're serious people and serious jobs that are executives and owning companies. And some of them have become my clients. And, you know, now we get, now we get to make fun of the Gen Y or whatever the hell's behind them. Uh, but, but that generation, uh, has, has largely embraced the gig economy by choice. And, and so, you know, again, it, it just underscores the fact that, or my belief anyway, that this is a topic that, that is well worth talking about the decision of whether to enter the gig economy or not. And joining us today is somebody who is uh, no stranger to the gig economy. I think we're going to find from many angles, um, Ben Cagle, who is managing partner of Cagle Consulting Partners, CCP, an advisory firm focused on helping clients accelerate revenue growth, respond to rapidly changing markets. Well, I bet you're busy doing that. Building and scaling organizations, and selling into large global customers. CCP serves as large global enterprises, IBM, Cisco, and SaaS, mid-market firms, and diverse technology startup clients in artificial intelligence, data analytics, cybersecurity, Internet of Things, and blockchain. Prior to founding CCP, Ben served as a division president for a global 100 enterprise. He had P&L responsibility for a global business unit, excuse me, of seven of several hundred million dollars of revenue and was on the core team leading an industry consolidation initiative with McKinsey and Company. Transitioning from industry into global management consulting, Ben served in various consulting partner practice, industry leader, solution innovation, marketing, and thought leadership roles. Ben's global enterprise consulting leadership experience includes positions at HP Enterprise, formerly EDS, DXC Technology, and Hitachi Consulting with clients across four continents. Ben has also led various NASDAQ, VC, venture capital-backed software and SaaS and entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial companies focused on advanced data analytics, market insights, and brand marketing strategy targeting multiple industries. Ben is an Alpharetta, Georgia native. I knew there was one out there and currently resides in Alpharetta with his wife, Sarah. He graduated from the Georgia Institute of Technology, is active in various technology and startup organizations, and currently serves as the chairman of Tech 400, sponsored by the Greater North Fulton Chamber of Commerce. And uh, it, it's, yeah, it, and, and we'll move, and it goes on and on. You know, look at his LinkedIn profile. He's done a bunch of stuff. Ben Cagle, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on the show. 
Yeah, thanks, Mike. And thanks for cutting my uh, LinkedIn profile short on, on that intro. I appreciate it. The beauty of copy and paste, baby. <laughs> um, so, you know, before we get started, yeah, uh, it's, it's bizarre that you and I have not talked more. You know, I spent a lot of time in the startup community with Startup Lounge, and I know you're familiar with it, and I'm familiar with your name, but this will probably represent the longest conversation you and I have ever had up until well, this point. Uh, that's because alcohol is not currently involved, but uh, virtually we can take care of that. But no, I look, forward, I look forward to it. I loved your intro. It was a bit lengthy, but I'll give you grief about that later. But disruption has been a theme of my career and a theme of how I've had to create value for different clients and different opportunities. So I really look forward to your setup. Really enjoyed it. So good. Conversation. Well, like I said, it was a record. Most don't go that far, but um, you know, it is it is just a fascinating topic, right? And when we get into society, society evolution um, questions, I, you know, I just find them so fascinating. And nothing, and, and my favorite, my favorite field of economics has always been labor economics. Uh, I'm not sure why, but just the relationship between workers' work and society is really interesting. And it's interesting because I think it's every time we think we understand it, we find out just how little we understand. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting how it's changed and how each industry is, you know, cascading at different maturity curves and everything else around that. So a, a lot going on. But, you know, I entered the, the workforce in, in the 80s. Yes, I'm that old. Um, and the expectation, I think at that time, we read several articles. It was, you know, you're going to basically I was at the I was really at the edge of the baby boomers the last year, maybe in the in the next generation past baby boomers, 35 year careers, one employer. Three years after I graduated undergrad, they then said it was radical. You may have three jobs in your career. <laughs> then it turned five years. It was, you know, 12 jobs maybe. So you can see how that change and that expectation, that loyalty to the global enterprise, uh, all the disruption you talked about has changed. Uh, and just going through all of that and, the, you know, even getting a 401k where you're accountable for your retirement versus all the baby boomers that are, you know, punched out before us, uh, you know, had the free ride with the pensions. All those changes I've cascaded, I kind of, I call it surfing through those changes and had to really respond to industries, you know, disappearing, new ones emerging. And then how do you manage your career through that, which led me to uh, starting my own consulting practice. You know, it'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating to see how my, my sons enter the economy. Uh, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. My oldest son will be 20 in, in April. My father had two jobs in his professional career after the Air Force. I'm on job, I think, nine since college, maybe 10. I'm not sure. Um, and, you know, my, my sons may have 30 over the course of their career, right? And the definition of a job may change. It'll be really fascinating to see how that, that all kind of works. So, you know, Ben, you've done all these, you've done all these things. You, you've had, in, in a lot of ways, you know, many people would say that, you had achieved the brass ring several times over. You know, you achieved, you sort of made it to the top of the pile, you made it to the top of the food chain, <clears throat> and then you gave it up to go into consulting and freelancing. So what I'd really like to understand, and I think my listeners would find fascinating, is I'd love you just to tell me about the the origin story. How did Ben Cagle, you know, a corporate chieftain venture capitalist turn into Ben Cagle freelancer Fiverr? 
Well, uh, my wife's still asking that same question. (laughs) (laughs) Should we get her on? That'll make for some good podcasts. This this will be a support group meeting if we we, uh, do that. Now, if if I may, I, I look at my career not just by jobs, but by chapters. And there's been four chapters to my career that kind of sets up what I'm in now is the fourth chapter, which is having my own consulting company. So I won't hopefully won't belabor the point, but let me just tell you that runway and the themes of that disruption that I that I previously mentioned. Um, got out of Georgia Tech, you know, got into industry, you know, global 100 company, started in sales. They trained me, you know, supply chain uh, all the way through operations, and eventually the industry itself was disrupted. And I, this, the industry is we sold paper to newspapers. Yes, I am that old. We, uh, you know, remember a newspaper you used to get ink on your fingers for the, you know, there was actually a product, not a digital product. But what happened is during that change, we knew the world was changing. Our customers were consolidating. All the media companies were consolidating. Uh, we knew this thing called the internet was going to take off. I'm in my late twenties, early thirties saying, okay, I know that in 15 years, I'm going to be obsolete. What do I do with my career? So at that time, I was very fortunate. We did a McKinsey study, reorg, and I knew that I had to get into technology if I was going to be sustainable in my career and uh, to keep having value. So with the industry and the paper industry, I was able to be you know, the division president, travel the world, global clients, did that, enjoyed that lifestyle, enjoyed the ego strokes that came with that, but knew I was going to have to transition. At that time, a company called EDS, their technology, they were looking at uh, people that um, you know had business experience, not even technology experience. I didn't even know how to do a PowerPoint or anything like that. But they brought me in. I led some practices, learned consulting, global consulting. I was recruited over to another company, CSC. So this, the first chapter was industry. Second chapter was big consulting. So, again, big business, big systems, all the ERP, the enterprise resource planning, the internet bubble, we consulted right through that, advised several large companies. Third chapter of my career, I said, and this is a key theme here, and I think this is what's happening with the great resignation. People said, screw it. I'm tired of the corporate re- reorgs. I was tired of going, you know, climbing the ladder, building an organization. Someone made a decision, sold the business, shot the business, didn't fund it. New CEO comes in with a new strategy every two years. So at that time, I entered the third chapter, which was working with NASDAQ traded data analytics companies or venture software, being, you know, leveraging my industry experience and PL experience into different smaller companies. Some, you know, Mike only had like, you know, $2 million of revenue. Others had 120 that were NASDAQ traded. I had, I had you know, thousands of uh, employees across two continents. So that was the third chapter is managing these small businesses. And then the fourth chapter was my own business. And the reason I decided was, you know what, I want to determine, I'm tired of other people, other influences determining my future. I'm tired of not, you know, not being able to navigate and be totally accountable for my own success. So I did everything wrong when I started my consulting business. (laughs) I had no clients. I had uh, three ideas and I really jumped out of it because I just left another position. and, And the decision was for me at that time Mike, and this is all, you know, this is, you know, PC, you know, pre-COVID. But I I said, I had a decision to make. Do I want to go back where, you know, I'm in my 50s. Do I want to do three more turns of the crank, finding jobs every two to three years? Or do I want to do my own thing and really ride this into retirement or really create a new future? And I made the decision, I'm going to take accountability. I'm going to create my own future. 
And to do that, I started out with, again, you typically, uh, you know, someone in their 50s that gets up, punches out of corporate, they always go and sell themselves back. They do consulting or freelance work for their previous employer. That's the standard model for someone in the 50s. Now, we'll talk about, you know, younger people, different skill sets, how they're freelancing versus consulting in just a minute. But that was you know, my decision. And I really started with a, a, a three-layer cake. I started with saying, okay, I've, I've led venture capital software companies. Let me play with startups. And that's where, Mike, I started hanging around all the incubators and accelerators in Atlanta. I think there's 35 at last count. And just started kind of building relationships and learning. Second chapter, second layer of the cake, mid-sized companies, five to, a, you know, five to 150 million. And then I said, what's their problems? You know, what can I, how can I add value? What would someone pay me for? And that's the problems of growing revenue, scaling organizations, applying disruption, and, you know, helping them just really think through their business strategy and then execute that strategy. And then I was very fortunate, kind of the third layer, layer, the top layer of the cake with the Global 100 companies. Uh, I actually was recruited by a firm that actually provides senior level executives back to IBM, Cisco, and SAS, training their sales reps how to have the executive conversation with the CEO, CFO, uh, you know, line of business leaders. So that's kind of the three levels of my consulting business, startups, mid-sides, companies have really, I've, I've done breweries, I've done <laughs> software development in India, you know, all that, all that tech stuff, all of these services stuff, and then still staying in touch with the, the global enterprises and even their innovation groups, because guess what? They want to know about the startups and create value there. So there's a method, method to the madness of that three-layer cake, and then solving the three major problems of revenue, scaling, responding to change, and innovation. So, Mike, thank you for letting me kind of share that. But that's really what led me to building this business. The other thing is I wanted – it was kind of a lifestyle, but more importantly, I wanted to kind of say, you know what? As I got older, I could either ramp it up or ramp it back. The other thing is Kegel Partners, I called it that because I didn't want the headache of having a payroll. So I work with 15 different partner firms – some of them are you know, three-person, sing, you know, single entrepreneurs, freelancers. Some are actually, you know, they have 100 employees. And if I need to assemble a team to deliver value, whether it's tech or strategy or whatnot, I can do that and, uh, you know, put all of my relations. It's really relationships together to deliver value for clients. So that's my long rambling. So, Mike, how did you kind of, if I was telling that story, what, what, uh, which, which themes hit of your disruption of the gig economy 2.0, what were you thinking about as I was telling that story? Well, the thing that, that struck me, probably because I just happened to violently agree with it, so it must mean we're both geniuses, is, is you talked about or you touched upon what effectively is the myth of stable employment, right? You, yes. told, you talked about being tired of somebody else making a, you know, making a decision for you. And I remember years ago, <clears throat> you know, I was a sole practitioner. I still consider myself sort of a sole practitioner within my firm. Sure. Um, and certainly my comp plan does. So I, th I think that all agrees. Um, and I remember giving a talk. I, I was at the Kettering Group, I think. And and back then, they, were, they, were, they had a lot of executives in transition. That was sort of their thing. They're not at that much anymore. But I, I started the talk by asking the question, okay, how many of you guys are in transition? Guys and ladies are in transition. You know, Two-thirds of them raised their hands. I said, okay, keep your hands up. And then uh, all of you who think that you are let go because of a, of a bad thing that you did, keep your hands up, right? And everybody's hand went down. 
and it 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 has everything to say to 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 do with what you just talked about. Acquisitions happen, strategic priorities change, economies happen. Somebody has a bad day, right? Well, my, um, yeah, Mike. I mean, perfect. I, I call it. I've been on the giving and the receiving side of a reduction in force. So have I. Yep. You know, and and I had to like the Nasdaq traded company that was you know again about 120 million dollars. When we came in as a leadership team, we were about eight weeks from not making payroll, so we had to get rid of about 20 percent of the workforce immediately. And you had to basically navigate a quick strategy whipsaw. And I'm kind of a relationship guy, you know, I'm a spiritual guy. I was really having problems with that, but it's kind of like the old, when you're in that leadership position, so I understand it, um, it's kind of like being a submarine commander when your subs hit in the front with a torpedo and you have to close off, you know, all close all the doors and you know the front sailors in the first section that got torpedoed are going to drown. But if you don't do that, everyone's going to die. So that's been in that kind of situation. But, you know, so I, I've been on the giving side of that. The other thing is, uh, you know, uh, I, I was hired by Hitachi Consulting, recruited by the CEO of the consulting group, working for the COO. They said they were going to be there five more years. I had I had three years to make my goal and build the business we were talking about. So as a senior level executive, they were throwing money at me. And uh, three months after I joined them, the CEO was shot. The COO was shot. So all these long term people that promised me the world, uh, basically six months later, they took the top 15 you know, of us and shot us all. So. That's when it says, you know, mad as hell, not going to take any more. I'm pissed. But, you know, and I've always said I'm smarter than everyone else and go prove it. You know, you know, if you're that pompous, yeah. and I say yeah. this to myself, you're that, you're that pompous, go make it happen. So that's how I got into consulting and um, and just loved it. And, you know, have, have no regrets going back. And, and, and you know, there's something to, I, I think there's a lot to the notion that, when you have when you have income coming from ten spots as opposed to one, right? It's just basic diversification, right? One one consultant decides they don't need you anymore, for whatever reason. You still got the other nine. Let me not tell as you big the, a deal. Let me tell you the best piece of career advice I got was from my landscaper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> True story. So you know, between senior level executive, you know, they always, you know, they always get rid of you and then they send you a severance and then you use that severance to look for your next role. Sometimes that could be a year gap, two year gap as you're jumping, you know, my chapter three of my career as I was checking, you know, different leadership roles. So, so he noticed I was home again, working from home yet again. Hey Ben, you know, you between jobs. Yeah. You know, thanks Al. I really appreciate, you know, you rubbing my nose in it. <laughs> and, and I said, well, but you know, at least I don't have it like you do. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, you know, at least I have opportunities and I've got the logos behind me and I was doing all the corporate stuff. He goes, well, Ben, that's all great. He goes, you know, I've got 140 customers. If, if three of them fire me, that just means I go home early. <laughs> so I'm going, damn, I missed it again. You know, <laughs> that was just genius. So, and that really, Mike, I will be honest, that informed my portfolio approach to I'm working with startups. They don't always have money. So I do some sweat equity, some for fee, retainer base, you know, fractional C, COO, CRO, whatever. And then, you know, but my portfolio of that middle tier of the cake, working with those mid-sized companies. And sometimes that's a three-month gig. Sometimes I check in once a quarter. And then the training that I do, you know, working with IBM, Cisco, or SAS, or the innovation group, you know, the chief innovation officers I work with, that comes and goes. So you're right. I'm managing a portfolio of interest, of revenue models, 
and everything else, but it's my hand to play. It's my cards. I lay three cards down. You know, I'm playing draw poker. I pick three up. And that's what I've enjoyed about it and being able to navigate those different ecosystems of relationships, which is key for freelancers or anything else. I'm sure you're going to touch on that in terms of what's, you know, what's success or how do you drive success. But that's been the most fun part. And meeting, quite frankly, uh, guys like you and some of the other professionals that turn into being you know, referral networks, hub and spoke advisors. It's just really cool. You, you meet wicked smart people with the same values. You don't have to deal with the assholes and you just, <laughs> you just, you know, run your business and run it the way you want to. So <clears throat> I think a question everybody's asking, and you sort of touched on this and you said you did everything wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody wonders how to you get your first client, right? That's so scary. Now you, you obviously have some exposure to sales, but not not every consultant who goes out there has a background in sales. But you know, talk about the story of getting that first client. You hang out the shingle, um, you know, Ben Ben Cagle and Associates or partners and whatever. Yeah, and, and a cable cat. Uh, sorry, Cagle Capital Partners and consulting partners. And um, how'd you get that first client? Yeah, it was it was, it was a referral. Um, and I started, I think it took me six months in my first year. Uh, and this is not making fun of people or saying it's derogatory, but my first year, I think I made 30,000 in revenue. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with making 30,000 in revenue, but that was a little bit below my expectations. And I had two daughters in college at the time. So, mm. uh, but I remember that first, uh, that first retainer I got was from a technology company. Uh, and it was part of my networking. So I mentioned the three layers of cake. I was networking and uh, just going to events with startups down around Georgia Tech, had a friend from Georgia Tech refer me to the startup, got a referral and just started telling my story. And that's, that was the connection. So networking and, you know, and referrals, key, key, key pipeline for, um, you know, driving, you know, any kind of freelance or consulting business pipeline. It's not the only channel to drive revenue or get clients, but obviously that's where your main, your first one's going to come from that, or like I mentioned, a previous employer or another, you know, if you've got a, another partner in your, your practice or other freelancers that can refer you in. So that referral network, that's key. If you don't have that, if you haven't built it, it's going to take time. Um, someone advised me, Mike, that it takes what I'm curious to hear your point of view. If you're starting you know, ground level cold. It takes about almost four to five years to build your network where it feeds your business. In addition to doing other marketing, doing thought leadership like you're doing here with your blog, you know, there's other things to really get your marketing, your awareness, your, you know, your interest out there besides networking, but that you can't avoid it. You've got to be out there talking to people and, and getting that referral network going. Makes yeah, it, 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 it definitely takes time, which is one of the things I'm, <clears throat> I'm harping on all of my my team who are much younger than I am, I'm, I'm always pushing them to build networks. You know, I, I only got serious about my network when I was about 35. And I kind of wonder, cause I was always the quant geek. I was the math geek. They shoved in the closet someplace and never let to talk to human beings. Cause I was the, I was a Greek letter guy. Um, but then I real, and, and that was fun, right? It was fun to everybody talk about how smart you were. But then I realized what, what immense damage that did to my career that, that I didn't, I had no network. And when all of a sudden I, I needed to learn how to sell. Yeah, it did. <clears throat> I think it took me, I think it took me a year to sell my first engagement period, which is a really small one. And then, yeah, it did take about five years before the flywheel started going and I didn't have to be 
always doing sales all the time for the phone to ring and emails to come in and so forth. Right, exactly. And I, I coach, I meant for a lot of people in their 20s, you know, 30s that are either getting started or, you know, I was talking to one, one lady, she, you know, worked with startups. She's 29. She's already feeling obsolete because she doesn't know where her next opportunity is coming from. She hasn't worked on our network. She really hasn't thought about her core competencies, what she's, you know, poor English, what she's really good at. And yeah. she hasn't thought about either her own consulting, what's the problem she's solving or anything else. You know, if you're an engineer, you can do software coding. There's enough websites now to keep you busy. Um, my daughters are in their 20s. They've got a friend. She's a financial analyst, uh, great MBA, and she's literally traveling the world. It's like, you know, we play Where's Waldo. It's like, where's Michelle this week, right? Uh, because she is working anywhere in the world she wants to doing her financial analysis. Those are discrete, you know, mathematical engineering skills. And I think there's, you know, there's kind of a hierarchy those are easy to quantify, easy to validate, easy to use, you know, all the technology out there. However, the, the more senior you are, the more vague you get, the more if you're a creative, you definitely need channel partnerships. You definitely need, uh, you know, referral networks, alliance partners that can really get you in the opportunities and uh, around that. So it really I look at it, you know, your, your skill set, your experience set, your tenure, which industries you played in. Uh, and then, of course, you know, what scenarios have you been in? Were you in a high growth mode or a mature, you know, dying industry? All of those five or six kind of vertical lines when I do career coaching informally, I look at all those and say, what are you really enabled to? How can we wrap you, package you? And then how do we get you to market to meet the needs and, you know, create value where someone will pay you for it? So when, you know, the, there, there's, I don't think it's so much of a choice. I think it's a spectrum. When yeah, you're a consultant, exactly. there's a spectrum of lifestyle versus I want to kill it, right? One is I want to I want to have a, a certain lifestyle, uh, and maybe it's a 30 to 45 hour a week kind of gig, and that supports a certain lifestyle, if you will. And then there's a 75. You know, I want to build the next McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting kind of thing. Where do you think you kind of were on that slider when you started and, and, and what went into your decision to go that direction? Yeah, well, I'd led organizations and I knew, you know, let's, let's be honest here. I think what you were implying, Mike, when you said, hey, it's going to take you a while to you know, win your first client. Cash is king, right? Cash is oxygen. Cash yep. flow. If you don't have cash flow or savings or investments that you're willing to give up to fund this runway, and I think you said a year before you get your first revenue. I, I would, I would, you know, second that 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 motion. And I think it takes you three to five years to ramp up. So this is going to be a long, you know, long haul building this potentially again, unless you have specific skills, very discreet. So uh, you know, that to me was my my goal was I had within three years I wanted to be making X per month. I wanted to have revenue on all three layers of my cake, my startups, midsize enterprise. And I wanted to build a network. I had a networking goal because I knew that the people, you know, that connected tissue was what was going to make me successful. And that's what I evaluated on. Uh, the other thing is, you know, learning, continuous learning and those kinds of things. So I had a revenue goal. Yeah. But I had other goals around relationship goals, exposure or acquiring clients with specific, you know, uh, problems, size of clients, and then building my network of not only just getting into clients, but also how I deliver that value. So that's the way I thought about it. Um, some people get into it saying, hey, look, I've got three friends. We're going to start billing. 
Um, you know, we're going to do website development and we're going to get out there and just knock it out and just, you know, lock arms and get it done. Uh, but mine was all about virtual. I wanted to be leveraged. I wanted to mark up. If I needed to resell, like if I needed a graphic designer, I would mark them up and I'd get 20%. They would do the work. I would be like general contractor. Mm-hmm. So that virtual firm was my model. And, and I've been very fortunate that we'd be able to pull that off. And I've had, I've had resources from India, Belarus, you know, brought in. And, and again, I love the virtual economy. I love COVID. I hate to say this, but I'm picking up clients well outside of, you know, Atlanta and Dallas, New York, Chicago, just because I, like this, you know, we're, we're talking on Zoom right now. You're recording the audio, but I can, I can add value to any client through any distance. I can collaborate with them. I can have deliverables. I can be part of their management groups without leaving the comfort of my home office. So to me, that was the other dimension. I thought it had to be geographically based when I started five, six years ago. Uh, this has really opened my eyes to this leverage model and bringing in other freelancers or other consultants to assemble them to, again, deliver value for the client. But you have to be very intentional about the problems you solve, the clients you go after, and the way you're going to deliver that value, whether it's your own skills and unique knowledge or there'll be tangible deliverables, you know, products around that. Isn't isn't it funny how we've had the telephone since the 1870s, I think it was invented, right? So we've had a call, call it, had the telephone for 145 years. For 60 of those, we've had video conferencing available, right? AT&T showing it off at the World's Fair. We've had video conferencing as long as we've wanted it. And, and, and nobody wanted it for a, a number of reasons, right? At first, it was because the frame rate was like two frames a second, right? And then for other reasons, we didn't want it. And now in the pandemic era, we can't get away from it, right? I have people asking for permission to get on an oldie-timey phone call because they're afraid I'm going to think less of them than I'm going to put them on Zoom. And I want to see the innovation diffusion curve for video conferencing. I'm going to go back and do the research on that because that's going to be a weirdly shaped curve. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, now that we've all gotten comfortable, it's like, you know, I'm not wearing pants right now in this frame. I just have a shirt on. (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. You're kidding, of course. Uh, But, uh, but it's funny how, to your point, the mores change. I mean, again, I deal with IBM who, you know, calls on Goldman Sachs. They call on Royal Dutch Shell over in the EU. They're having to sell their consulting services virtually. And now that you know how they measure relationships, if you know you're really close with a client, and I, I, and I just confirmed this with another uh, mentee of mine who's about 32, who's, who's in sales for tech sales. If you've got a text relationship, that's like the ultimate. If you can text that CIO, chief information officer, you've got permission where, and they don't know, you know, they've already got you identified in their address book when you, you know, when you pop up. When you can actually be on the Zoom call or the WebEx call and text them to get feedback on what's going on, not even do chat, that's when you know you've made it. And so to your right, you, you, so everything has been inverted from a relationship. Hey, let's go get a cup of coffee in the cafeteria. Tell me about your kids. And then I'll find out what's really going on. You know, walking the halls, uh, elevator pitch. Remember yeah. all those terms, right? They're oh, now yeah. obsolete. Uh, to now the relationship, if you've got the highest relationship with a C-level of a, of a global 500, if you, you're texting back and forth and they, they, you know, on weekends and all that, boy, you know you've made it. Uh, the other thing is I found using Zooms and, Zoom and WebEx, people are going, how do you build a relationship? 
And I said, Hey, just cut the, cut the meeting short to 20 minutes and say, you know, give them 10 minutes back in their schedule because everyone has 12 hours of zoom now uh, and give them back 20 minutes or 10 minutes and say, Hey, uh, Bill, by the way, or Barbara, before we break up, do you mind if just you and I, I got it. I've got an idea I want to run by you that I think might help you guys or may create value or, you know, solve a problem. And that's the way you have to do it. And then ask either for permission or get on, you know, get to, get to text as soon as possible. And that's how, you know, you've, you've really made it from a sales and development standpoint. So isn't it weird the way that's, you know, used to avoid text because there was no interaction. There was no voice inflection, but now that's become the gold standard of relationship. Oh, it's, it's, it, it's fascinating and probably warrants its own podcast in some, in, in some fashion. Um, yeah. You know, I've met in person fewer than 25% of my clients. And that number goes down every year. They don't want to see me and there's yeah. nothing I'm even to look at if it's a tech company. Yeah. They don't want to deal with me. Now, occasionally, you know, if we're local and say, Hey, let's grab a beer, you know, grab coffee. And you know, there's some social element to it, but I remember, I mean, when, when COVID hit, I, I hosted a virtual happy hour. Everyone got their drinks and we, uh, you know, we brought people in literally from four countries and, and three, I guess, really five time zones because just trying to get social interaction, talking about how people were responding differently to COVID and everything else. So that social element, that that emotion is still that need is still there. But you're right from, you know, a business to business standpoint, uh, people don't want to see you. They don't want to, don't want to invest the time. Uh, they don't want to put a, a you know, collared shirt or a dress pants on. Right. So. Yeah. So thinking back and when you, you started, started as a consultant, yeah. what was the scariest part? Was there a scary yeah. part of it? And if so, what was the scariest part of that process and how, how did you overcome that fear? Yeah. Uh, I liken it to, I don't, you know, again, I'll show my age here, but remember the Indiana Jones movie when he had to step out on faith and walk across the abyss yeah, of, of a hidden bridge, right? Yes. And he didn't, he didn't know it was there. Um, that's what it was like is taking that first step saying, I don't know what's going to handle. Now, again, keep in mind, I had two daughters, no, no scholarships, out-of-state tuition. So I had my highest cash flow outflow with zero income coming in. So that's pressure. And if you're measuring your security by your 401k, your investments, your cash flow, your savings, you might want to rethink getting, you know, when your kids are in college, starting your own consulting business. But at that, so that was the scariest point to me is not knowing the financial insecurity, knowing that I may be betting my part of my retirement savings on the fact that I'm betting on myself that I can build this business and be successful. That was the scariest part to me. So let, let's, uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to geek out on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, that was a great movie. So what helped, what helped Indiana Jones overcome his fear was that his father had been shot and he was dying, right? <laughs> What helped you overcome your fear? What is it that got you to take that first step off the cliff? Yeah. What, well, what, I think what happened was it wasn't a greater fear of going back into another job. It was, I think, my pissed factor. I was uh, so mad. was exceeded <laughs> my fear factor. Is It made me more determined just to go for it. So if you're doing a two-by-two two matrix of pissed versus scared, I was more pissed than I was scared and going for it. And the other thing was I knew the world was changing rapidly. I had had to adjust from selling paper to newspaper publishers to selling, you know, implementing SAP ERP implementations to Toyota North America to, you know, basically doing e-commerce for banking in Europe. I understood how change was happening and I thought I could capitalize on it. 
And I was, I was betting on that. So that, that was my big trade off of, you know, what, which, which, and I'm a very rational person and not, you know, I, I, I've got a weird sense of humor, but that was the trade off. It's like, damn it, I'm going to go do it. There's a market opportunity. I believe I can capture it. And I, I think I can create a better future than I can going back into corporate or trying to get another, you know, leadership position that has a two year, three year runway. I was just, you know, so, and, and, we haven't proven that theory yet, but, uh, you know, touch wood with God's will and a little bit of uh, more persistence and great network, great network partners. Uh, you know, we're on our way. I'm feeling pretty good about it. So one thing that I think keeps people from, from becoming a freelancer or a consultant is the matter of health insurance. Yes. Um, you know, I, I had a sole practice, I had a sole practitioner shop for a while. And one of the first lessons I learned as a sole practitioner is that, is that the best insurance you can buy in the open market is more expensive and worse than the worst worst health insurance you're going to get through almost any company. That's what I learned anyway. Well, again, you've been talking to my wife doing background. On that. <laughs> she, oh, she complained about our insurance. She still does. But no, I mean, we're spending, you know, two, just the two of us now. The kids finally uh, got married and got off the payroll. Well, partially off the payroll. Um you know, so we're paying, you know, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month in, in insurance with a high deductible. And, uh, you know, it covers uh, you know, catastrophic events. But uh, beyond that, we get a free COVID shot and that's about it. So. Yep. So I think that's that was the biggest learning financially for me is, OK, healthcare. I've got my overhead. I knew that. But getting comfortable with that. And of course, all the tax implications of, you know, making sure that, hey, look how much money I'm making versus making sure, if, especially if you come out of corporate, you're used to all those withholdings made for you. Be very intentional about that. Or if you're using retirement savings, their early penalties, the true cost of money, make sure you understand that before you, you make the leap to go there. What what's a what's a skill set that you've had to evolve or develop since moving out on your own? It's not personal discipline, but it's the I think, and this is what a lot of people have pr- trouble with, is structuring your day. Right. It is saying that I'm going to, you know, go to this networking event back in the day or I'm going to work on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, It's allocating that working on the business versus in the business. You've heard that when you first start. And again, I mentioned that fear of having a high cash outflow and not much coming in. I thought I had to be you know, constant business development, finding that versus being smart about laying the foundation in LinkedIn using media like you're using, you know, smart channels like Radio X and some other things you're doing with your blogs, being really intentional around that because that's the foundation of, that will feed you and serve you later. So that's the biggest skill of work, you know, on the business versus in the business and really uh, get used to adding structure and discipline. You know, no boss is going to tell you what to do. No company is going to set up mandatory conference calls it is a blank slate and you've got to add that structure. I knew that, but it was a, you know, it, you really have to be intentional around that. And that was really a muscle I kind of had, had developed to being part of corporate, but really had to be intentional around structure, work on versus in the business. I'm talking with Ben Cagle of Cagle Consulting Partners, got it right after, instead of five tries this time. And the topic is, should I become a consultant or freelancer? <clears throat> That's the benef- benefit of podcasting. Um, more forgiving, more forgiving medium. So um, uh, how, 
me ask you this. Who shouldn't become a consultant? <laughs> right? I want to I want to take the flip side of this. Not everybody's cut out to be every to be everything, right? There's no amount of practicing I could ever do and become a successful ballet dancer. I should not become a ballet dancer. Who shouldn't who's what kind of personality or what kind of personal situation probably if maybe doesn't prohibit, but at least puts you at a serious disadvantage to becoming a consultant or freelancer? Yeah. You know, let's go for kind of seniority level from a, you know, career standpoint, you know, and then work our way down. So arrogant former CXOs should not be consultants because they're just going to, you know, they, they write their book. That was basically their swan song. They promote their book and uh, they add zero value. Hmm. And eventually, eventually I've seen them, dub, you know, the, the, the tail of their growth curve goes off about eight to nine months because no one wants to work with them because they're arrogant. They think they own the world and they want, they're doing it for ego versus really adding client value. So that's kind of one on the other side of it. If you're not comfortable with understanding problems, asking questions, interacting with people, that's kind of like consulting one-on-one doing discovery on what the problem you're solving is or what the requirements of the job spec they want to hire you for are. If you're not comfortable with those interpersonal skills and leading that and thinking ahead, and you're not a structured thinker, probably uh, not a good idea to get in consulting. So that's kind of a skill set personality uh, continuum. Uh, but those are kind of some of the people I've seen have tried and failed. Um, you know, you can be very shy, but be very analytical or very technical. And if you've got the right either, you know, partnership or channel partners or you kind of contract with a company that places you, you can do really well. But if you're out on your own, you know, I'm going to be dealing with clients. You got to find it, you know, you know, get a skin, you know, find the client, kill the client, skin the client, eat the client. You have to do, you know, all the delivery all the way through. You better make sure that uh, you, you have confidence in yourself. You have great communication skills and you're not talking about yourself all the time. You're spending at least, you know, you know, 70 percent letting the client talk versus you. Uh, that's what I meant about the arrogance. I've, I've seen a lot of people just talk their way past opportunities because they were trying to prove how smart they were. So kind of lessons learned there. That's the pragmatic. Mike, what are, you, what are your thoughts? What dimensions do you think about when you think about people consulting who are successful or not? I think it's coming to grips with the fact that, that having, to be, having to sell becomes part of the job description. You know, if, if, you're, if you have a particular skill set, that's great. But if nobody knows about it, if nobody, if nobody understands how that fits and how that addresses a need that they have, I, I think it's very difficult for a consultant to succeed in that way. Yeah. And the one and, question I ask people, excuse me for interrupting. The one question I've asked people that want to get into consulting, do you think sales is dirty? Yeah. Is it, is it beneath you? Is it sleazy? Is it, you know, that perception will tell you if you're ready for it, depending on if you think sales are, you know, is, is, is really helping people finding problems. How are you going to help them solve their problems? Then you can, you know, odds are you might, you know, you'll be more successful as a consultant, but if you think you've got to sell and ask for the order and I hate talking about money and, you know, they're just trying to take advantage of me. If you kind of come in with that attitude, boy, you just, you know, find, you know, keep your day job. <laughs> <laughs> update your LinkedIn profile and uh, fi- hopefully find a good place, IT sta- or a staffing firm or a good recruiter because you're going to need it, right? So, yeah, I but think I, um, I agree with what you said there, Mike. Yeah, you know that the the transition at the end of the day is 
you might find yourself moving from being a cost center to a profit center. And that can be a difficult, that can be a difficult transition because nobody like when we, when we say somebody is a cost center, there's an implication that you're kind of a dead weight <laughs> and you're not a dead weight, but you are a weight that has to be carried by the profit center. And, and what I've, when I give advice any for the few people who ask me for advice about their careers, they always position yourself to be a profit center. If you're a profit center, then you're never going to be unemployed a day in your life. And, yeah. and that's what consultants have to do. And if you're, if you're particularly, as I did come from a technical field, uh, finance and business evaluation, um, you know, I can be the greatest spreadsheet jockey in the world, but if I can't go out there and get clients, it just doesn't matter. And what, what you find is, um, the people who can sell make more and they have more job stability. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. And, you know, having, just having that knowledge going in, I think, you know, it's, that's like a yes, no primary screen question you should ask around that. Can you represent and, and again, not tell what you do, but understand and relate to that person you're, you're sitting across the zoom call on about uh, what their issues are and how you're relevant to them. Right. So I've been on both the buy side and the sell side of consulting. So I've had that advantage and it's yep. just, uh, even today I get sold constantly, you know, they're trying to sell me services for my own firm or people are trying for me, you know, for me to hire them or partner with them. It's amazing how they push the play button, talk about themselves and really don't understand the situation they're going into. And if you don't have that awareness, that EQ and IQ, boy, you're not going to be successful as a consultant, right? So you've really got to have that radar going. Yeah, it's it's hard. Ben, this has been a great conversation. We're, we're running up against the hour that I asked of, of, uh, of you for time. I know we haven't gotten every question I wanted. We got off our script pretty quickly, but that's okay. Um, but there are probably questions that our listeners wish that I would have asked or we'd, we'd stayed on a little bit longer. If somebody wants to follow up on this conversation with you for some advice, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, Mike, we're pretty casual about it. And thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for reaching out and, again, giving me the opportunity to be on your, your blog. Uh, if they care to reach me, uh, they can reach me directly through email at ben, B-E-N, at kegel, C-A-G-L-E, partners.com, ben at kegelpartners.com, or through my website, kegel, C-A-G-L-E, partners, kegelpartners.com. And again, I've, I coach people. Part of my values when I founded my firm is I want to help other people advance. If I can help them and create value for them, odds are eventually it'll, it's like karma. It'll eventually come back, if not from that person, someone else. Don't mind helping people. Love to have a conversation any way at all. I can you know, give perspective or help people along the way. Would be glad to do that. Email or hit my website. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Ben Cagle so much for sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also, check out my new LinkedIn group called A Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Wearing Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.